The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Let's pray again. Father, I ask for mercy and help. Mercy because we don't deserve to know you, yet it's been purchased for us, and so we can justly, boldly enter into your throne room, longing for more of you, and you graciously disclose. Help because I am needy, we have 30 minutes, and I want to bring together these difficult, challenging realities that we've been working through and do so for your glory and for the good of these people. So meet us, I pray, through Jesus. Amen. Our question. For two weeks we have looked at the because part. Is God less glorious because he ordained that evil be? We looked at natural evil. We looked at moral evil. And recognized that God is in charge of all things. God's control of all things, last week, I tried to argue, includes moral evil. That is, that God ordains all things that happen, including human sin. That God isn't seated on a throne outside of a kingdom where sin is happening. But He is over all things, orchestrating, working for His good purposes, permitting things that He hates for more ultimate ends. So we want to wrestle with that today a little bit more. We've raised this question, does this mean that God is the author of sin? And I've argued that it cannot mean... If by author, what we mean is that God is the sinner, the agent, the actor of sin, the doer of any wicked thing. We can't mean that. We can't say that. Even though I've argued that God is the ordainer of all things. He's not passive in anything. He is active in all things. Yet He's not the doer of any sin. And I come to that conclusion from texts like this. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. But I raised the question last week that do we consider an author sinful when he creates a character in his story who is filled with evil, if the intent of that author is to reveal that evil and then to overcome that evil with good, God is the author of all things. He calls himself, I am. We call him, he's the causer. He's the causer. He, he causes. That's his name, Yahweh. He's like the author who has written himself into the story. And if 
Jack Lewis had written himself into Narnia, everybody would have looked at him and called him, he's the causer. That is how they could have designated him. And God has written himself into our story. God has established a world in which sin necessarily comes to pass exactly as He ordains it to be. He permits evil in a set way so that sin sin happens directly as He intends it to happen for His good ends and yet in a way that He's not tainted by it. So I'm going to talk about something here. I've said everything God does is active. He's not passive in anything. But I want to distinguish now. I'm saying God is active in all things, but now within that activity, I want to distinguish positive from negative agency. Positive agency is what comes out positively like the rays of light from the sun. If you say, what does the sun give us? It gives us positively warmth. It gives us positively light. Well, where does cold and dark come from? The withholding or the absence of the sun brings about necessarily and naturally darkness and light. That is, the sun brings about dark when it goes down below the horizon. It is the absence of the sun's power where darkness and cold automatically flow in. Positive versus negative agency. Now that's just an analogy, and it's the analogy that Jonathan Edwards used. God ordains that sin be by creating a world or a set of situations where sin will without question occur due to the absence of his positive influence. That is, he chooses where to withhold his positive influence in such a way so that everything will come about, both the good through his positive influence and the evil through his withholding of his positive influence directly as he ordains it to be. It's the only way that I can understand how to put these things together. How God can indeed not just say, his heart will be hard, but I will harden his heart. That's active. And yet what I'm saying is that the only way I can understand that, for God not to be a doer of any wicked thing, is that he actively ordains something to happen, and the way that he will bring it about is by withholding his positive influence. God is life, God is light. It's the absence of God where chaos and death reign. And yet there's measures to his act, active, the, the way that he shows himself evident. Because hell will continue to exist forever. It is the absence of God's positive influence. Chaos is reigning. Darkness is reigning. And yet God is still in charge of all of it. And it's not separate from his sovereignty for eternity. Notice how I say it here. We cannot hold that God is the author of sin if by this we mean. That's where I'm settling it. And I'm saying that what this is asserting here, this final statement, I think we have a category, even in our own day, for authorship to not include the doing of any wicked thing. Yet, 
ordaining. Tolkien was not wicked in creating the story that he created. Could have been, but I don't think he was. Yet the story is filled with deep, deep evil. And we might say, well, that's just a fake story, fictional story. But it actually is, is over and over again, thoroughly portraying ultimate realities. And I think that's why we're so drawn to it. So, I think there's a category wherein we can say that God is the author of sin. But in saying that, we are not saying that he is the doer of any wicked thing. How do you contrast the concept? He is the creator of all things. Indeed, he can say in Isaiah, I create evil. He uses that term, bara, with the object, ra, evil. And yet, I mean, as Edwards was wrestling with this, and, and I found no one that, I, I think Edwards' mind was far beyond my own. But in the mind that I have, I have found no one wrestling with the topic for whom what he's doing to try to explain it resonates with what makes sense to me as I'm putting texts together. I cannot deny that God hates sin, and I cannot deny that God is over all things. Indeed, not just generally over all things, but specifically. Let me, let me just unpack this for a second. Um, I'm just going to hop through this. God opposes. I, what, I, what I want us to see is that there are, there are two wills in God. It's the only way I can make sense of how I'm reading the Bible. Does God will this to happen? Well, we have to say, what do you mean by will? He hates when people hate his people. Him who dishonors you, Abraham, and all those who are in you, I will curse. I do not want people to dishonor you. But, Psalm 105, God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people. And both are equally true. One discloses his revealed will. Like, what does God want of me? God does not want me to hate his people. But the other discloses a more ultimate, sovereign will. Wherein, in his good pleasure, for some ultimate end, he felt the need to raise the Egyptians up against his people. God commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. What does God want from Pharaoh? He wants him to let his people out of Egypt. That's his revealed will. Yet God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And both are true. What does God will? I will to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let you go. What does God will? That Pharaoh let the people go. Those are two wills of God, but I'm, what I'm proposing is that they're operating at two different levels. One is what people will be held responsible for, in accordance with. This is the, the line upon which God is judging people. And Pharaoh did exactly what he wanted to do. He did not want to let them go, and so he didn't. And he was judged in accordance with his desire. We always do what we want to do most. And we're judged in accordance with it. 
Does it help at all to think about that he designed every one of us with the same capacity that he designed Pharaoh for evil? In other words, we all, every one of us, I think, has the same capacity for evil. But by God's grace, we're not necessarily moving on capability. That's very true. I would agree. We all have the same capacity for evil, but so did Pharaoh have the capacity to display the wonders of God. He was made in the image of God. He had a capacity, if we would say that, and yet he did not have the positive influence. All that he had was the desire of the flesh influencing his soul, and that the flesh was producing desires in his heart in such a way that sin necessarily and naturally came to pass just as God ordained it to be. It wasn't just a general withholding, but it was a withholding in a way so that ultimately, he said, at plague seven, I could have already wiped you out, but I have kept things going so that I might display for all the world my power. So he was orchestrating it. God opposes, this is hard, God opposes adultery. Do not commit adultery. And yet God says to David, after he sins with Bathsheba, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes. I will do it, and I will give them to your neighbor, namely his son Absalom, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. We can't jump over these verses and say, I'm not going to think about that part of God. The end justifies the means. For the ultimate being and only the ultimate being, I think that is necessary. I think that that's necessary, but only for the ultimate being. Because we are responsible to align with that ultimate being's revealed will, and anything outside of it is sin. And I'll say this, God is driven to preserve and display his... I, let, me, let me just take a step back, and I'll say it a little bit differently, not to confuse matters, but our responsibility is to be passionate for exactly what God is passionate for, to preserve and display his glory at the highest level. The challenge is that our call to preserve and display his glory is accomplished from the sphere of the revealed will of God. And his passion to preserve and display his glory has to include something broader. Lest his glory would not be preserved as beautifully as it could have been. God makes it clear that it was sin for David to take the military census. I've sinned greatly in what I've done, and yet God was the one who ordained it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, go number Israel. God forbids rebellion and insubordination against Israel. His king, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. But God ordains that Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes rebel against Rehoboam. So the king, Rehoboam, did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. And when all the people saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? And they broke off. God opposes murder and all forms of unjust killing. You shall not murder. And yet, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand had purposed and predestined to occur. 
God at times ordains the very thing he hates. God desires all men to be saved, and yet he effectually only calls some. Notice how these words are given. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This predestination gives rise to a natural chain of events that cannot be broken. We're not talking about a general calling to all. We're talking about an effectual calling that is a calling that is effective. Notice 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. Now to the Jews and to the Gentiles, he's a stumbling block. But to those whom God has called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What this means is that the stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, they weren't called. Those who were called are saved. That's that's a distinct kind of calling that I'm talking about, an effectual calling. And yet we read, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We can't say one is true and the other is not true. Both are equally true. And what I'm proposing is that the only way I can understand it is that they're operating at two different spheres. One is related to a sovereign will or a will of decree. Like, I know that you can do all things, O God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Satan cannot thwart the purpose of God. In that ultimate sense. And yet, Satan can be working in the lives of people, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, and moving them to sin all the time. But when he does that, he is thwarting a different will of God. He is thwarting the will of command. Like, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's God's revealed will to us. It's what we're held accountable to. And God can go, sorry, Satan can go against God's revealed will all the time. But that is a different will than when it says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. That is a will that cannot change. We have a massively big God who is good all the time. And yet who has permitted a world where sin and suffering exist. His will of decree, so that's His sovereign will, the will that cannot be thwarted. His will of decree is His inclination to a thing. Not as it is absolutely or simply, but with reference to the universality of all things. So, God can say, I love when you love my people. I love it when you don't steal. That is what God thinks about this activity simply and by its own. He loves what is good and true. But His will of decree doesn't relate to that. It relates to the more ultimate purposes of God, says Edwards. So though He hates a thing that is that as it is simply, whether the death of His saints or the sins of humanity, He hates them. He may incline to that with reference to the universality of things. So let me so here here we are sovereign will revealed will there are times in the bible where we get glimpses of god's revealed will like in exodus when it says sorry we have lots of signs of god's revealed will 
They're all over the place. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your substance. God's revealed will. Pharaoh, let my people go. But there are times, some texts, where God's revealed will is explicitly put side by side with his sovereign will. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. We're getting a glimpse into God's ultimate purposes. God comes in the, at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. I have come. The Lord has come so that you would fear him to keep you from not sinning. That's the revealed will. He wants them to encounter the living God. And yet, the story itself tells us that his ultimate purpose for Israel was that the Old Covenant would not give them life, but would condemn them to death. The sovereign will works its way out. And we see the sovereign will made explicit in Deuteronomy 29.4. God has not given you eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to know him. He hasn't given it to you. A picture of his more ultimate sovereign will. So we're here, and every once in a while we get glimpses into the ultimate purposes of God that cannot be thwarted. Glimpses like Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will not turn from me. Already uh, today, John 10, sorry, John 10, 27 through 30 was mentioned. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Sorry. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We're getting a glimpse into the ultimate sovereign will of God. The the saint-saving, the saint-holding purposes of God. So if God ordains evil in view of a greater good, then we have to ask ourselves, what is this good and how does the existence of evil serve this good? Because nothing is random. Nothing is happening by chance. There are no random molecules floating around that are outside of the sovereign purposes of God. So, let's start here. If God ordains evil in view of a greater good, what is that good? What must that good be? What must it have some relationship to? Because He's the ultimate end of all things. If He stops being the ultimate end of all things, if something other than God becomes more important than Him, if He's up here and now He's working for some greater good other than Himself, He will stop being God. It is necessary that he works for his ultimate ends, that the ultimate end of all things is for him. By him all things exist, through him and for him. From him and through him and to him. To God be the glory forever. And then I've I've talked about how, how that movement of God, his passion for his own glory is actually the most loving thing that he could do for us. Because only in relation to Him can we find full joy for the longest amount of time. 
Only in relation to Him do we find a true Savior who can overcome all of our cares and carry us through the deepest pains. We want a God who is this big. We want a God for whom nothing catches catches Him off guard, even if the way that He works does not allow us to see and understand all that He is doing. It keeps us small. It keeps Him big. And He opposes proud people He likes that kind of relationship where we're small and he's big. And all of a sudden, we receive help and he receives praise. As we just sit there with our hands open, God, this is a very hard world. I can't understand it all. I need you. I need you. I need a God who was on the throne before the trouble struck and who is still on the throne today and who will be on the throne tomorrow and who is for me and not against me in Jesus So God is driven to preserve and display His glory. The ultimate end of evil must fit into this picture. But now I want to ask a more specific question. How could God preserve and display His glory better? Remember the question is, is God less glorious because He ordained that evil be? How could God preserve and display His glory better? By ordaining a world where evil would be and where the cross, therefore, would be necessary. Remember that the cross is all about overcoming evil. It's about reconciling all things back to God. So, ponder this. What does the cross bring? How does the, the, a world where the cross exists bring glory to God in a way that that actually could not bring glory to God if it didn't exist. Why will such contrasts be unnecessary anymore? Why will such contrasts between evil and good be unnecessary for eternity? My proposal is that, and this relates to the tension of why doesn't God perfect us overnight? Instead, he saves sinners who continue to battle sin for some extended amount of time. There's the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And he will have a level of delight for eternity. But I would propose that our experience, sustained experience of rapid-fire mercy, God, I sinned again, I sinned again, I sinned again, I sinned again, is building up for us an eternity of joy wherein we will in the future be able to look back, recognizing even more deeply than we do now the depth of our sinfulness and the beauty of our Savior. That this world, the contrast will continue on in our memory. And and we could go to a number of texts that I, I think support that exact idea. The fact that all the salt in the Dead Sea is not removed in Ezekiel 47. And the salt is there because of sin, Sodom and Gomorrah. The salt in the marshes is there so that people can put salt on their food, it says, as an ever-present reminder that God's able to overcome the curse with blessing. The fact that there will be multiple languages singing the praises to our God and language is a result of curse. God doesn't choose to give everybody one language, but rather to maintain the sea of reminders that the curse has been overcome. And 
I touched on this a few weeks back. The likelihood that we'll be eating meat for eternity. Food. Food, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, That we'll be eating meat for eternity. Not only the Passover lamb, but bacon. As an ever-present reminder that all animosity to God and His ways has been overcome. What is it about the cross that we see of God that we would have not seen otherwise? Has God changed? Did the cross make God change? Like, was He not merciful before? Was He not wrathful before? That's an element right there at the very end. We've talked about wrath. God is holy, but we would not have seen His holiness displayed in wrath against that which is not holy were it not for a world with evil and the possibility for the cross. God is always love, but we wouldn't have seen it as curse-overcoming love in the form of mercy, undeserved love, were it not for a world with evil. But at the very end, you mentioned God's choice. We would not see God's freedom as God in choosing to save some and not save others were it not for the cross. And He doesn't do it on behalf, on because of anything we are. Apart from the cross, I don't think we could understand suffering. This world would seem chaotic and hopeless Apart from the cross, I'd be part of the problem, which I am, and there'd be no solution. I'd have nowhere to look. God is made magnificent in the context of the cross. Track track with me through this passage. This is the passage that moved me from being having a view that man was the decisive mover in our eternity versus God being the decisive mover in our eternity. Man is a mover. We make choices for God that are necessary conditions for our justification. Hear that. There's conditions for justification. You have to believe or you will not be saved. Conditional grace. That's what we're talking about there. But to see God as the decisive mover, it was this text. So not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children. So you remember Isaac's wife, Rebecca. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Isaac, our forefather Isaac, through, though they were not yet born and hadn't done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I think Paul is expecting not everyone will have a super high view of God's sovereignty. But the people will read this and actually wrestle inside with some of the kinds of things that I've been teaching the last two weeks. That's okay. Paul expects it. I read this. They hadn't even done anything good or bad. They had, they had not made any choices for God. They had not worked at all. In order to let his purpose of election continue, he said, this one I've loved, this one I've hated. And I say, I mean, if you're honest, do you feel a sense, is that just of God? Is is he allowed to do that? Very next verse. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice in God's part? 
If you don't arrive there, you're not tracking Paul's logic. He expects you to feel a tension in your soul if you haven't arrived where he's at. But he expects that there's people that that love the Lord that aren't where he's at. He's writing to the Roman Christians. And he's pulling them along. Is there any injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And the tensions rise. How can God hold Pharaoh responsible if he hardened Pharaoh? Does that question come to mind? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault with Pharaoh? Just track track the logic of the text. For who can resist God's will? And Paul's answer is, okay, you're not hearing me right. You can resist God's will. Not in this text. You can't resist God's sovereign will. You can resist his revealed will, but that's not what he's talking about when he's talking about the hardening of hearts and showing mercy on some. You will say to me, who then can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now listen to this. What if God... What's driving God to do what He does? To ordain a world where evil exists? What if God, desiring out of love and out of what is right? What if God... Desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much wrath, with much patience rather, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order, in order that you and I might enjoy the riches of the glory of God. To make known to us, through the display of His wrath, through the display of His power, to make known to us the riches of the glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us on whom He has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Remember where we started three weeks ago. For by Him all things were made, through Jesus, that is, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, the very things that we fight against, the very things that He disarms at the cross. All of these were made for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, first to rise from the dead to show His superiority over all evil, over all death, over all sin, in order that in everything He might be preeminent. And that is right. That is necessary. And indeed, it is the most loving thing that God could do to lift up our Savior before our eyes that we might magnify Him and see our need for Him. Because there is no name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved except Jesus. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. We wouldn't have seen God's power to do that. To not just create, but to fix These are big thoughts. 
Notice where it all comes. Making peace by the blood of His cross. Here's where we end. See if you can track. Jonathan Edwards has big words, big concepts. I've got three slide quote of Edwards. Just listen. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory, that is the glory of God, to shine forth. It is proper and excellent for that to happen. And for the same reason, it is, a proper, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of His glory should shine forth. That every beauty should be proportionately effulgent. That the beholder, that's you and I, may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. Thus, it is necessary that God's awful majesty, His authority, His dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed, so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of His goodness and love and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness and hatred of sin, or in showing any preference in His providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever He would bestow upon us, His goodness would not be so much prized and admired. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which He made the world. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of His love. And if the knowledge of Him be imperfect, then the happiness of the creature must be proportionately imperfect. Our God is exceedingly glorious. So he has permitted a world where evil exists. And evil is, is horrendous. And he's come to save us from it. But not only to save us from it in the ultimate end, to save us through it now. He will not leave us or forsake us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. I am sure that neither height nor depth nor no. I am certain that neither life nor death. Ah, oh! <laughs> what's the first pair? I ah, there it is. That neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the world will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, go before us. We stand awed at your bigness. Hold our hearts. There's some, some fragile hearts in this room today, and I pray that you would care like a father who knows how to help your children best. May the words of a big God not f move people to flee, but move them to kneel and seek help from you who alone hold our tomorrows. 
In Jesus' name, keep us from stumbling, we pray, and guard us from the work of the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.